Welcome to another podcast hosted by the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. The centre hosted a number of seminars at the London Book Fair in April 2011, and this one took place on the 12th of April. The seminar, titled Tweet Smell of Success, All About Social Media, was introduced by Angus Phillips, the head of the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. Angus Phillips introduces three speakers, Tom Hall, Head of Communications at Lonely Planet, Joe Pickering, Publicity Manager for Penguin, and Davina Quarterman, Marketing Manager at Wiley Blackwell. Welcome to everybody to this seminar on social media called Tweet Smell of Success. My name is Angus Phillips and I'm the director of the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brooks University. This is one of three seminars we're running at the London Book Fair. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome our three speakers who are going to talk about social media. Firstly, Joe Pickering, who is publicity manager for Penguin. He works across both fiction and non-fiction in the imprints Hamish Hamilton, Viking, Fig Tree, and Penguin Island. And he handles publicity for authors such as Joshua Ferris, Nick Hornby, Will Self, um, and David Van. And we're going to hear from him in a minute about his work with David Van on Twitter. Um, he. In 2010, he won the Publishers Publicity Circle Award for the most original fiction campaign, and he went on to win the Bookseller Industry Award for Publicity Campaign of the Year. On my right is Tom Hall from Lonely Planet, where he's Head of Communication. He's been closely involved in the long-term evolution of the famous Thorntree uh, travel social networking site, and um, it has a new post every 12 seconds, apparently. They also run very popular Facebook and Twitter accounts. In 2011, Lonely Planet is going to break through the one million barrier for the number of community members online. He also um, writes weekly on the Ask Tom travel blog in The Guardian. Finally, I'd like to introduce Davina Quarterman, um, who is marketing manager at Wiley Blackwell. And she's responsible for a um, list of scholarly journals in the Life Sciences Division. She has over five years of experience in the areas of marketing and e-commerce, and she's got a very detailed understanding of new media and digital marketing. So what, how are we going to run this? I'm going to ask each of them to speak for about 10 minutes, and then we'll open up the discussion. And what we're looking at today are the issues facing publishers around the whole question of social media. We know that authors have now been encouraged to blog on a regular basis. And indeed, many new authors are expected to run a blog before they even get signed up. Are we okay at the back? We need to be a bit quieter, I think. Okay. We're happy to keep the doors open if you can stay quiet. Then we can hear ourselves. Thank you. Okay. Um, we also know the value of opinion formers um, in the blogosphere or on Twitter, for example, Stephen Fry. We now know what he's doing at every hour of the day, wherever he is around the world. Um, and if he re recommends a book, the sales rise exponentially. And a good example of that was a couple of years ago when he recommended the book Sum, the book of short stories by David Eagleman. And it rose to number two in the Amazon bestseller lists on the, best, on the basis of his recommendation. Now, a publisher said to me recently, we got someone employed doing Facebook and Twitter, but we're not actually quite sure why we're doing it and what results we're going to get. And that's the point of the seminar today, is to actually look at the impact of publishers' work in social media. Publishers know they must be involved, 
but can we be clear about what benefits accrue from the use of social media? And the kind of objectives publishers may have are building their brand online, creating communities around their content, or simply aiming to drive the sale of an individual title, which is where I'd like to bring Joe in to start with, to talk about his work with David Bam. So thanks very much, Joe, and over to you. Uh, hello, thanks for waiting. This is on. Can everybody hear me if I talk about that level? Um, wasn't even shortlisted for either of those awards this year, so... Uh, um, it's not been a good year. Um, last time, I gave a talk on book publicity generally to a small writers group and shamelessly brought along a bag of books um, and said that anybody who asked a good question got a book. Uh, but that obviously then leads to kind of judging in front of everybody's peers whether a question was good or not. Uh, I haven't done that this time, but if you do ask a question, I, uh, as to, to win you round, I offer to, for you to give me your email address, I'll get in touch, I'll send you a, a paperback. I can't say fairer than that. Um, can I just, a uh, show of hands, I'm going to talk about David Van's Legend of Suicide. I get a bit embarrassed talking about this book now because I talked about it so endlessly and obsessively to so many people for so long. Uh, can I get a show of hands who has heard of it? That's reasonable. Any out the back? Um, can I, are there show of hands who's read it? Ooh, okay. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, interesting, given that my job is to get people hearing about books. Um, uh, I'm glad that the, uh, those awards are not being judged on the basis of this room. Um, um, I read this as uh, um, in a printed A4 uh, manuscript, printed version of the American book, uh, beginning in January 2009. Um, I don't know how many of you here read printed manuscripts, probably a few of you. I find it the most painful reading experience. I don't know why I can't get my head around it. Around it. I, kind of, I want it to either be this size or the size of a hardback. Um, but I read this in two days, absolutely knocked me sideways. Um, it did everything that I kind of want um, American, uh, American literary fiction to do. It's beautifully written, um, honest and powerful, genuinely, genuinely shocking. Um, I know more than one person who uh, has kind of gasped out loud on the bus at a certain moment in it. Um, and it felt to me like a book that really, really had a huge word of mouth potential and just something that you really wanted to talk about. Um, an editor at Penguin who read it just before I did, not the, not the book's actual editor, said that he finished it upstairs in his room and walked downstairs and 15, for 15 uninterrupted minutes told uh, his flatmates exactly what happens in every stage of the book. It was kind of just so affected him. Um, and this was kind of exactly the impact it had on me. Um, and this was January 2009, like I say. And we weren't publishing until the end of October later in that year. Uh, I'm going to hold it up just in case anybody didn't see it, because I, you know, I obviously do want you all to go away and buy it afterwards. Uh, I only have one copy here to give away, but it looks like that lovely shiny, shiny fish on the ca uh, cover. Um, so we were publishing it sort of about 11 months uh, later on in the year uh, from me having read it. Um, and it also presented some huge problems publishing-wise and in terms of the media. Um, 
we published it straight into paperback as an experiment um, because he was unknown, because it was his first book, and because at the moment literary fiction isn't really selling in hardback for anybody unless you are, uh, unless you are a real name. Um, and so that presents huge problems media-wise because literary editors and traditional media don't take original publications, original paperback publications, as seriously as hardbacks. Um, they can squirrel them away in uh, first novel roundups, short story roundups. Um, they can put them in the paperback roundups, and it's just really, really easy for a book like this to disappear. Um, and it presented problems in itself. Um, for those of you, for that, for you who's read it, um, you'll know uh, that it, uh, and <laughs> that it's. Um, it's a kind of book of short stories, basically, um, but presented kind of like a novel. Uh, they're all linked, it's chronological, you do, it challenges you to read it like a novel, yet there are things in it that challenge what you expect of a novel and challenge things that you found out earlier in the book. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult book. It's got suicide in the title. Uh, it, has, it was being published at Christmas uh, <laughs> when our sales team uh, have bigger fish to fry. That's not a joke about the book. They just simply do have, there's less space in the bookshops for books like this. Um, it's just extremely easy for a book like this to disappear. Um, but um, I just felt, and the editor felt as well, that it was just too, too good to disappear. To, it was a book that I genuinely thought in 20 years is going to become a classic. Um, Traditionally, a publicist has to go through uh, has had to go through old media and various gatekeepers to make uh, to get a book out into the public uh, sphere. So, with a book like this, you'd have to go to literary editors, to radio producers, um, to events organisers, and try to enthuse them about um, about a title. Um, Problems with that are that it's very difficult to make those people listen. I mean, you know, they're they're intelligent, opinionated people, and they, as much as we have great relationships with some of them, they do, you know, they are uh, usefully suspicious of what publicists are saying, um, and that would also mean that nothing would really appear about the book until publication, and that's kind of uh, I I sort of thought that was an easy way for it to disappear. So at the beginning of 2000, in late January or early February 2009, I wrote a, I sort of decided to do two things. One of which as a former bookseller was to contact uh, booksellers about recommending this. I used to work at Waterstones in Brighton and um, naughty kids at the back. Um, I decided to contact lots of booksellers individually. I went to our sales reps meeting, got lots of names of booksellers, not managers, not necessarily fiction buyers, but just people that I knew I could talk to on the phone and say, I understand you're a fan of Richard Ford or Tobias Wolf or Raymond Carver. Um, I think you're going to love this book. I'll send you a proof when we have them. And I really believe that would, the, uh, the, re the personal recommendations from booksellers from Foils or Waterstones or um, uh, indies can really, really sell the hell out of a book. And I think all of us probably have looked at a recommends card in a bookshop uh, once or twice. And 
And if you've had a bookseller come up to you and really, really sell something, hand sell it and recommend it. You know, I, uh, when I worked in Waterstones in Leadenhall Market uh, in the city, I think I sold, a, I think I sold 140 copies of Slow Loris by Alexis Deacon. I don't know if anybody knows that book. It's a picture book. Uh, absolutely beautiful book. If any of you have got young kids who uh, are around that age, can't recommend it enough. Um, and I kind of wanted people to have a similar uh, feeling and a hand, wanting to hand sell this. But that was only kind of one side of it. And I thought there's got to be, there's got to be, there's got to be non-book people out there, or just people who are just into books that will t have a similar effect, and we'll talk about this. Um, so I wrote a blog on the Penguin website, and we don't like to use the blog for advertising. So you'll, while it will talk about new series, it will often be about the design of them, or the history of a certain book. And we won't often talk about a new, just a new book for a new book's sake. Um, but I felt it's 10 months before publication, it's not gonna look like that. I simply said, you know, I think I started it, if I could write like anybody in the world, I wanna write like this guy who you've never heard of, but I really think you'll hear of him. I, crazy, crazy uh, statement, I think. I was kind of, I was, I'd only been at Penguin about four months. Um, and at the bottom of that, I, well, I set up a Twitter account, and at the bottom of that blog, I put the link to it and said, if you want to hear more about this book and some other books, start following me. Um, I got about 10 followers from that, which I was quite chuffed with, um, and then sort of had two, uh, two clear aims for that Twitter account, which was to build up my followers as quickly as possible, because if nobody's listening to what you're saying, then what's the point in saying it? Um, and also to try and uh, find a voice, try and find a voice that worked on Twitter um, and a voice that people wanted to hear from and that gave people information about publishing and a particular publishing house. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a real boon in terms of a brand to be able to say that you work at Penguin. You know, it's, the, it's one of the only big publishers that, people that everybody knows about. Um, and so my kind of aim was to put those two things together. I shamelessly shield my wares um, by giving away lots and lots of books early on. Lots and lots of really, really good books. So what I would do is I would start um, a hashtag topic, just book giveaway. Um, and I would say on Friday I'm going to be giving away some books, retweet. Uh, later on I'd say uh, tomorrow morning I'll announce what that book is going to be, retweet. And then I'd sort of say, I'm only going to give these away if I get to 50 followers. You've got to tell people, you've got to tell all of your followers. And then it's like 75 followers and 100 followers. Um, and I should give you another couple of minutes, I think. Cause okay, yeah. yeah. And then we had to pass everything through legal. So I was able to, so you had to think, oh, how are you going to do the terms and conditions via Twitter? So I made my Twit pick uh, the, um, the uh, terms and conditions and said, you know, you've got to read those. And that got into the bookseller and through that I got more followers. And then I gave, did a competition on uh, giving away all of our issues of McSweeney's, which was the best competition I did. I thought I had a great prize, 13 issues of McSweeney's, like hundreds of pounds worth. Um, to people I had to write a short story. Uh, and the one that won was in Twitter. Can you check this raffle ticket for me? The old lady asked her son-in-law. He wasn't an honest man. So I think it's a great, uh, 126 character story. Um, and so just sort of throughout the year, I was kind of just doing these competitions, providing information about things. And basically, every time something came in about this book, I would tweet it. So every time, we, when we got the fish, 
from the designer, tweeted that. When we got the actual jacket, I tweeted that. When we got our proofs, which we did as inverted black and white ones, so we did two covers, I tweeted those. I found lots of literary bloggers uh, through this and got them to do a Q&A, which I wrote for our, um, for our files. Since become very, very close with a lot of those bloggers, and that's a really great relationship to have. I found a lot of traditional journalists on there who I would not have been able to contact had I not been on Twitter. And people like a guy called Stuart Evers, who's been an enormous supporter of this book and reviewed it in The Independent and interviewed him on the radio. Couldn't find him through traditional media, but I found him on Twitter. Um, and so, I'm obviously rushing the end of this, I'm going to finish. I'll come back to you in a minute, but yeah, you can... I, um, yeah. And so basically, by the time this book came out, uh, the word hype was being used, which is, a bit, which is a word I have a real problem with, because um, I think it suggests money and um, power and lots of things that behind it. But now I look back on it, I think it really meant that we had done our job correctly. Um, Dove Grey Reader, blogger, did a whole thing on hype a month before this came out and prefaced her entire piece with this book. The Metro called it the most hyped story collection of the season. And so by the time it came out, we had the traditional media knew that there was a lot of people online talking about this book and bloggers talking about it. And the bloggers were picking up on the fact that traditional media had got wind of this. And so I think by the time it came out, we just had a real kind of crest of a wave. Um, and everything managed to hit at the same time, which, was, which is the ideal thing in a publicity campaign. There is tons more I could talk about. I'll you know, we'll I'll come back around, to you later if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah okay. no, no, absolutely. Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, Tom, over to you now. Yeah. Listen, listen to Joe all day. Yeah, it's a it's a cracking story, and, and one of the things I think it illustrates is that as a way of reaching out to an audience that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get to, um, social media can be hugely effective. And if you're imaginative and you're doing something different, people will listen and they will appreciate it. Um, one of the other things I think it really demonstrates is you've got to have something to back that up. So if all the stuff that you were doing was, you know, turn me up. Uh, I'll speak up, how about that? Um, anyway, it, it's great because it talks about a product which is obviously absolutely fantastic as well, and I think that's one of the, one of the key points. Um, a little bit about Lonely Planet um, and social media. Um, Lonely Planet um, ticks a few boxes. Um, we're very active on Twitter where we've just gone through the 300,000 follower mark on Facebook where we're shortly to go through the 300,000 follower mark. Um, but we're probably best known for um, some heritage that we have in community. And one of the points that I would make is that the lines between social media and social networking and community and building both of those are actually quite blurred. Um, and I would say neglect one over the other at your peril. Um, Lonely Planet set up its Thorntree bulletin boards in 1997 when we first set up LonelyPlanet.com. Um, we now have 800,000 uh, registered users of our Thorntree community. Um, and as Angus says, a, a new post every 12 seconds, sometimes more than that. Um, there are advantages to old school forums. Um, you know, firstly, people tend to spend longer on them. You know, a, a tweet by its very nature is very ephemeral. You spend very little time reading it. Occasionally, you might retweet it. You might click through and read out, read what it's telling you to look at. On forums, people are spending a longer time. It's more of a time commitment. Um, there's, you know, the page dwell times are higher. 
and it can have a greater influence over buying decisions. Um, one of the things that we're most nervous and excited about when we bring out a new guide or a new range of guides in particular is the feedback of people who are on our Thorn Tree forums, many of whom have got thousands and thousands of posts. Um, what are those people? Well, they're probably a bit more than customers and then we certainly wouldn't call them users. They're probably certainly super customers and they're people who you look after very, very much. Um, so just to say that if we're all here thinking this is something that's new, it's actually not terribly new. Um, it's talking directly with people who care about and are passionate about what you want to give them. Um, I wanted to talk a little about the differences between Twitter and Facebook and how we see them, how we use them. Um, Twitter has been very much something that is um, a quick two-way line of communication. Um, you do get people who are coming in, having a look and then disappearing off somewhere else. And it is a place where, for example, our authors who are out travelling on the road um, can communicate with people who will be using those books and inspiring people to travel in a way that they really haven't been able to before. Um, you know, there are hundreds of Lonely Planet authors out on the road as we speak all over the world. That is a, a hugely rich source of travel inspiration, up-to-date content, um, you know, up-to-the-minute news about a variety of places. And it's not just us who are doing this. Brat Travel Guides are another example of people who use Twitter very, very well online. When it comes to Facebook, it's a little bit more of its own ecosystem. Um, at least this, this is what we find with it, that people are keener to be served the content that they want in the place that they are when we're talking about Facebook, um, which meant a slightly different approach was needed. Um, we do see traffic coming through to our site from Facebook, but it's not the primary reason why we're there. Um, it is for us about brand building and a, and a community development exercise. Um, one thing that we did recently, which we were quite blown away by the results of, um, was we got together with an Australian vlogger, video blogger, um, called Natalie Tran. And Natalie is the, the most followed person on YouTube in Australia. And uh, she makes little videos about the strange things that happen to you in life, like when you approach someone in a corridor and you can't decide whether you're gonna go that way and you're gonna go that way and you end up doing that for a little while. Um, and through doing videos like this, she amassed a huge number of followers on Facebook. Um, and we thought, hang on a second, you know, a huge number of followers and someone who's pretty funny and makes some good videos. Um, so we um, asked Natalie if she'd like to go around the world um, and make some videos for us. And um, probably unsurprisingly, she said yes. We were very pleased that she did. Um, and what she did was she went to a variety of different places on the Around the World ticket, uh, Paris, New York, uh, Las Vegas, but also really interestingly uh, up and coming destinations. She went to Jordan earlier this year. Um, and she was a first time traveller, which actually, while Lonely Planet's very well known for you know, people going to intrepid places around the world, this was a chance for us to really re-engage with someone who was doing something for the first time, seeing the world through the eyes of a first time traveller. Um, and these videos went up, they generally received a positive response. Um, we more than doubled our number of Facebook followers in a very short period of time. If you think about the numbers that I said at the start, that was a pretty significant exercise for us. Um, as much as that, the results were tremendous fun, um, and I think it, it did a lot in terms of helping us to, you know, get to get to know a totally different group of travellers who we maybe weren't speaking to at, the, at that time. Um, a few points for me also just on about what might be coming up next. 
Um, I think that it's safe to say that the existing uh, dominant social media channels are here to stay for a while, um, but also location-based services, uh, Facebook Places and Foursquare. If I was betting, I would probably put my money on Facebook Places over Foursquare. Um, though that said, I think Foursquare is a huge amount of fun um, on the phone. And I think there are some really compelling things that publishers can be doing in those sort of spaces. Um, travel publishers, I think the opportunities just jump out obviously at you, actually. Um, but I also would say one thing, and that is, People often say, well, that's all very well, but what is the value of a user? What's the value of someone on Facebook? What's the value on Twitter? The answer, is, as far as I'm concerned, and I think my colleagues at Lonely Planet would agree with me, is the, the, the value of somebody who follows you is nil, unless you get that person to do something else. So whether you get that person to sign up for an email newsletter, get that person to stop by your website, um, and whether you get them to engage with you in a slightly different way, and ideally, controversially, end up buying a book like Joe's. Um, so that's one certain steer. It's great to go in and have some fun, but bear in mind what it is that, that you want to achieve, um, and those things are possible. Um, and the very last point that I would make is that the more you do this, the more it feels a very integrated part of what you do. So don't put the social media person in the broom cupboard. Make them an integrated part of your marketing and comms, and that's the best way to do it. Great. Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, so, Davina, over to you. Great. Thanks. Um, so I'm just going to talk a bit about strategy and how we actually... Um, sorry, I was going to talk about strategy and how we actually take some of these great ideas. Luckily, um, the examples explained today fit in well with what we would consider <laughs> sorry what we would consider to be um, uh, <laughs> you're welcome okay thank you <laughs> what we would consider to be um, sort of best practice when approaching something um, like social media which can be very scary it's a you know it's an emerging field and uh, we're never quite sure where it's going to go or, or the potential so I just want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the web. So back in the 90s, we had the emergence of Web 1.0, as it's called. And I'm sure you've heard lots of branding about Web 2.0 and what does that mean. So Web 1.0 was read-only. It was static web pages. It was just a source of information, you know, much like an encyclopedia or, or reference works. It didn't really offer much interaction. Then we moved into Web 2.0, where, where users start to generate the content. So you're in a position where you can quickly post a blog, you can send a tweet, you can um, make a web page relatively quickly. Um, and, and so that's called the read and write web. Um, so as we're in the midst of Web 2.0, we're already talking about Web 3.0 and Web 4.0, which I still have no idea actually what that is. But I know that Web 3.0 is more about semantic web, so getting websites, as we're generating so much content, to actually curate what we're posting and, and make it make sense, basically, for the users. Um, and I think that will be a long-term process, but I think we're getting there. So ta it's based on the use of tagging and making sure that the content that we're generating is um, filed in a way that computers can think on our behalves and send us what the computer thinks we want to see. So we're seeing it already with Gmail. Um, if you write emails and your friend's getting married, Gmail will pick up keywords like weddings, bridesmaids, and it will send you ads on the side. All of a sudden you'll think, oh wow, how strange. I, I was only thinking about that last week. And it's all 
happening to you. <laughs> um, so we've heard about some great um, benefits and opportunities with social media, but there are also some challenges, I think. I think as we're generating more content, there's an increased um, level of noise, there's an increased level of distraction. Um, your life on a, as a tweet is very short. You've got minutes, maybe, if you're lucky, depending on how many people you follow. Um, there's also this element of trust. So people are more and more trusting strangers. I know I, for one, if I'm booking a hotel in a new city, I'll look on TripAdvisor, and I believe the last three people that have posted something, and I don't really know who they are, I don't know what their standards are, they could have low standards or high, but I'll believe them because I've seen it, and it's in print, it's strange. Um, also, transparency, it's a new thing for marketers, so I'm obviously in marketing, um, it's not, completely alien to be honest and truthful in marketing, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a new way of interacting with customers. So you are being very open and honest and, and um, inviting feedback, which is something completely new and emerging. We tend to talk at customers and, and people rather than with them. So that's a change in pace. And also time, it does take time. It takes time to research the area, the ecosystem. Is it Facebook, is it LinkedIn, is it Twitter? Where, where do I start? It takes time to build up networks, um, develop content, think about exciting things to, to tweet other than what you had for lunch, but that might be interesting too. Um, so I think, yeah, uh, there are definitely challenges, but one of the ways that we can help to overcome these is through the power of influence, which is something that Joe was um, <coughs> talking about earlier. So finding the key players, or becoming the key player in a community, finding where the community are online, um, doing a lot of research about what they're interested in, the types of conversations they're having, um, the questions they have, the gaps in the knowledge, the gaps in the market, and then trying to position yourself. So, oh, that's not the right one. Position yourself with the knowledge that you have and the, the influences. So, you know, key book authors are key influences already in their communities. Just translate that online into a slightly different platform. So influence, the power of influence. So this is some research by Foresters that basically says that you can segment the online user into one of these categories. Most people are at the bottom end. They join things, they watch things, they spectate, they don't actually participate, they don't click on things, they don't want a voice online, they're just basically spying on what's happening, keeping themselves in the loop. There are a small number of people that are critics and creators which will actually are the people that you want to engage. So these are the people that the opinion leaders, they're, they're, they have a stronger network potentially. And you can save yourself time, as Joe did, by just finding some key players in that field, making them ambassadors, winning them over, and letting them spread your messages for you can actually save you a lot more time than having to develop the, the network yourself and um, get people to trust you and trust what you're saying is actually correct and true. So before you start, I would say it's really important to develop a strategy. So as I explained before, you start with the research, find out what's happening, you segment, target, and position yourself. And then I think it's quite important to measure. How do you know when, once you've been successful? Is it book sales? Is it website traffic? Is it the level of engagement? Is it the number of people that like you or dislike you? Um, how will you know when you've reached your objectives? Um, and that will also help to then tweet some more and send some more messages and you can refine it. So it's a, an evolving conversation, really. So um, Ready to Spark suggests there are six steps to 
um, create influence or harness your, your own influence in an ecosystem. So one is to listen, as I said before. Two is to connect. So be where your audience are, I think is very important. Um, I think it's very easy to just join Facebook and just join Twitter and have a background and just run with that because that seems to be the simplest idea, but that might not actually be where your audience are. They could be on subject-specific portals. Um, there are regional differences. So for example, Facebook's blocked in China. They use QQ um, and RenRen instead. Um, hand signals at the back to talk up. Sorry, in, chi in China, <laughs> Facebook is blocked, so they use, um, they use uh, QQ and RenRen instead, which are local language platforms, which work basically like Facebook, but they're, um, you know, it's something they've developed themselves. So if China is a particular market that you're interested in, that's what you would consider instead of Facebook. Same with India or Brazil, they use Orkut, they don't really use Facebook, it's not their preferred method of communication. Add value, I think that's really important, that helps to build the trust, um, that, that helps to validate what you're saying and, and um, build up a relationship and engagement. Um, be approachable, um, I think that's really important as well. Be authentic and, and make sure that you're engaging the audience. So I've just got a couple of examples from Wiley. So listen, so this is the Darwin 2009 um, Twitter profile. It has over 110,000 followers. It's listed by over 2,000 Twitter Twitterers. Um, and basically it was designed to celebrate the bicentenary of Darwin um, and it was, main objective was to bring together the evolutionary biology research area, books, scientific research, and really bring into light the fact that it's multidisciplinary and that it actually affects a number of different subject areas, not just um, life science. And I think the, the key thing about this particular um, campaign was that the person that was running it actually listened to what the people wanted. So he realized there were gaps in the knowledge. There were, you know, the, the medical teams weren't talking to the life scientists and they, they were not joining up as much as they should do um, their thinking in, in research and publishing. So this was a good way to bring those different elements of people together and it worked really well. So. Um, retweeting research that was obviously needed, it was generating questions, uh, retweets, and it's actually now on the list. So every time you join Twitter, Twitter says, oh, I suggest you look at some of these profiles to follow, and it's actually in the science category with BBC News and The Guardian Science Tech. Um, so that's good. Connect, so be where your audience are. I think I've, this is the dummies example, so if you have a broad range of if your topic has broad appeal, then I think you're going to really need to be everywhere, to be honest, and that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it, it will be worth it in the end. So um, Dummies has Facebook, Twitter, videos, um, lots of engaging content, um, and it also gives a lot away for free. So trust, again, and, and giving giving things away for free, advice and having sort of video how-tos, which, which are in the book, but having it in an accessible format that's just a nice to have is always well received, I think. And apps, I think mobile technology, as we discussed before, is gonna be quite key and mobile mobile device usage is very big in the Asia Pacific region at the moment. So if that, again, that's a region that you're interested in, that's something that you should probably consider as well, I think. Add value, uh, so this is a, a journal called Methods in Ecology and Evolution. It's an online only journal, so there's no physical printed copy. So it's very important for this particular product to build online presence and an online community around the, the product. Um, 
so the, the research they published uh, is its methods is how you actually do spatial modeling of badges in a field somewhere and all those sorts of things. But more than just actually having uh, you know, a very boring looking research article document, they have videos that the authors are invited to put together as a sort of um, interview and a, and a layman explanation of what it is you're actually doing. So how do you do that? Can you actually show us? And, they, and you know, it's, a, it's an accessible and quick route to, to find content, I think. And these have been very successful as well. They tend to have them for at least each issue. Could I ask you another couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah. Not, not many more. Be Approachable, Chemistry by Wiley. Um, this is a Facebook fan page, uh, has over nine, nine and a half thousand um, fans. And I think the really key thing about this is that they, they are very open um, and accessible and people feel, uh, it's now at a stage that people feel comfortable enough to ask questions. So the, as you can see, there are a couple of questions from students. So this is really about lead nurturing and, and getting people at an at earlier stage of their research career so that they can be nurtured with the brand and get to you know used to know it and, and feel comfortable with it to carry on using it throughout their career. Engagement. So um, this is a higher education um, Facebook page called uh, Love of, for the Love of Food. It's um, has some video content, polls, podcasts. It's all about um, culinary. It's for the culinary um, student market. So. They had a contest on Facebook about dressing a plate, um, and they invited key authors to judge the, the competition and also ask other, other people to get involved and the peers to, to comment on how well a plate was dressed and how exciting it looks and so on. Um, and that gained a lot of interest, and it's built up momentum now. And I think the, really the, the nice thing about this is that there's so much added value. The actual selling of the book is very low key. So it's, it's not hard sell at all. It is very much about building the online community and, and, and bringing all of the, the students together. And at the very bottom, deep down, right at the end, there's just a link to the book. But I think it's a, it's a good, powerful tool. <coughs> so I think key points for me are, have a clear roadmap. I think it's important to set objectives. Um, <coughs> Make the most of influence, either your own or someone else's. If it's hard work and you don't have much time, don't be scared to, to uh, coerce others. Add value and build trust in the community because that, that again, will help to, to validate your position. as a. And don't be scared. Um, sometimes you do get it wrong. It's, there's no quick win. There's no preferred answer. It's all pretty much finger in the air guesswork. But I think there are some guidelines that will definitely help. Okay, thank you very much, Davina. Um, uh, I want to ask the speakers a question, but first, Tom's been following us on Twitter, which I suppose is entirely appropriate for this seminar, so you've got a couple of tweets to have a look at there. I feel like I'm on sort of football phone-in show. Um, <laughs> who's Evening Kitchen? Hello, Evening Kitchen. Can I read out your tweet which says, it's harder to get into the hashtag LDF Twitter seminar than it is to get published? Hashtag <laughs> <laughs> feeling smug. Who was Evening Kitchen? Uh, do you want that? <laughs> that was your other tweet, wasn't it? <laughs> Any others? Or was that no, no, that's it. That's it. Okay. Um, I should say we've got a podcast this on our website at Oxford Brooks, so if you meet somebody who wasn't able to get in, then they will be able to listen to it again on our website. I guess I want to start off by asking the speakers, I mean, Joe mentioned earlier on, on the Penguin website and the blog, you're not allowed to be actively selling. Davina picked up on that point just now as well. Um, how do you measure what you're doing when you're not actively selling? How does, how do, anybody got any answers to that? 
Well, I think I'd like to hear what Tom and Davina said about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they both seem up on the kind of technical tracking side of it, which I'm, I'm kind of, I've sort of said before that I'm not, I'm not so much an advocate for, or I'm not so much an evangelist for social media as, as for starting and having conversations with people about books. Um, so like before I got on Twitter, I wasn't on any social media. I don't really, I've only, I'm only sort of quite new to Facebook. I don't use that for work. Um, so I got onto Twitter for, for work purposes. Um, so I, and because I thought I want to be able to start conversations and just like Tom said about how um, what's happening on social media isn't actually that new. It's just about people talking about things. But I wanted to try and get work out who those key players were, as Davina said, and, and try and maybe get close to becoming one. Um, um, so I kind of I want to hear what Tom thinks about kind of how you actually measure uh, the success of something like that. Okay, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, 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 there isn't a definitive answer uh, from my point of view. And what I would say is that we have goals around getting people to, you know, to, to join up with us, to sign up with us um, as, as a goal in itself. Um, why do we do that? Because we can see paths through um, to other things that we're doing, whether it's coming through to our website, um, signing up to newsletters, and then eventually you can make a case that, that there's some way in which you're monetizing some of these things. What I don't want to give across is the impression that that's what we're, you know, our sort of evil empire aim to do is it, it's, it's not really. Um, and that's not to say that that isn't a good idea and a, and a good goal if you can do it in a way that feels authentic. But what I would say is that if you're, if you're looking for a way to make this a route towards seeing some sort of return on what you do, you need to be quite specific, um, you need to be quite targeted. Um, for example, a, a Facebook community that is active, and I think you know, active is an important word there, um, will usually respond well to uh, you know, offers that are specific, um, that make them feel important and special, that maybe give them things that money can't buy, that are exclusive to them and it's made clear that they're exclusive to them and that are not sent to them very often. Um, so there's a scarcity value. Um, other other you know, actual measures that we would have, um, we do look at click-throughs to our site and we do look at traffic, um, but we don't have targets on that, I suppose I would say. Right, okay, Davina, have you got some thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's definitely um, specific to the task. So setting objectives is very important to help with the, the measurement side of things and the metrics. So there are, there are tools out there that you can help to, I think people avoid the term return on investment and would prefer return on engagement, which is a new sort of social media buzzword. Um, and so you can, you can use things like social mention or Topsy. Um, they're free websites that if you put in one of your links um, that you've blogged or tweeted about, then it will give you this sentiment value. So how was the general feeling towards what you said? I, I'm not quite sure their algorithm for measuring it, but it, um, yeah, I guess it, it gives you some indication. Uh, yeah, website traffic, click-throughs, Google Analytics. I think it's also important to not take social media as just one, one you know, it's not on its own. It, it has to be integrated as part of a, a bigger, wider campaign. And, and then you can see the, the true results, I think. Okay, I'd like to invite a question from the audience. Would someone like to ask something? Just make, 
Yeah. It's an observation. I mean, we, we started using social media at our company and asking all those questions. What, what, what's the time equals money and what's the fun and what's all the rest of it? But it is, it is kind of sinister if you, you can get measurements of how authentic you're sounding. I mean, it does begin to put, put me off. I've always run the company along authentic grounds. It's what you're offering in real terms at the end of the day that has to be everything, doesn't it? What, what, what's actually happening in the real world? I think there is a danger of wasting a lot of time, frankly. I mean, you know, and it's, it's a, I mean, a big company can afford it. We're a tiny developing company, and um, it's interesting to me that it's still not worked out, the relationship between the parts, which is what I love about social media, because it's like an art. It's an excitement. And I would never invest anything other than playful, playful curiosity in that and proper engagement um, with people. But I'm also very honest with clients as well, saying, you know, this is becoming a bit time-consuming. And, you know, be, being very straight with people about, about the whole environment. Um, could I, could I yeah. talk, you know, just respond to a client? And, and, you know, one thing that I think is, is very, very noticeable is when you do something wrong, when you, when you do something that... that is an unpopular move with the people who are following you because you know you, you do see a drop off in numbers um, and especially in somewhere like Facebook where people don't necessarily come there to have marketing messages put to them um, so you have to be aware of that and that's something if you're just starting out and I'm sure you know people have been doing things in those spaces for a while but if you were just starting out that message needs to be communicated within the company because in a sense I sometimes feel like you can be a bit of a gatekeeper because people are saying, well, why don't we do this, why don't we do that, why don't we do that? And you think, hang on a sec, what's the medium? And you get, you do the right thing for the medium in every case, not just in social media, and this needs to be treated the same. So, yeah, yeah I'm sure you're having some interesting conversations about that. Okay, uh, lady at the back's got her hand raised question. Um, when, when you were tweeting about the legend of suicide, was any of it um, available to read, any previews, or did you just discuss it? Um, not at the beginning. Um, my blog post was, and I probably tweeted the link to uh, the New York Times review. Um, but it was published. Uh, I, I actually I kind of got away with it because it was published to, uh, by in, to such a small extent in the states. It was published by U University of Massachusetts Press. Um, and the print run was 1,400 copies, which in the States is equivalent to not bringing something out, I think. Um, and after the New York Times review, which was in December, it sold out, and it took them six weeks to republish. So I kind of got away with it. If, we'd, if, that book had been a, if the book had been available in the States, I actually think it would have uh, harmed uh, our sales in the end. Um, but as soon as things became available, I was offering them to people. So we got proof copies um, really early, about seven, six, seven months early, um, because the book was available. The manuscript was copy edited and everything. So I was giving that to people um, and then inviting them to talk about it. Other bloggers started posting pictures of the cover on their webs on their blogs because they liked it. Um, so it was, so there was kind of, you know, I gave away 20 copies to random people that, you know, to see if they would read it and what they would respond to be. Then I gave review copies away to bloggers and uh, traditional media reviewers who were also on Twitter. So in the end, you probably have about there, like 40 people on Twitter who were talking about it. 
and it's you know it's not quite exponential, but I think that those people were then sort of doing my work for me because everybody seemed to luckily you know when you're sort of based ten months of a count ten months of your job on uh, saying to people this book is incredibly good and you have to read it. It's you know he's kind of worried that nobody's going to uh, agree with you once they get around to it. Can you reveal the print run and so eventual sales, or is that? Yeah. Uh, print run was uh, four thousand, five thousand. It's, right. it's sold. I think it's we sold sixteen thousand through Bookscan now. And right. I think it's probably about twenty. Yeah. Okay. Um, lady on the right here. Question. Uh, so now are all talking about that the, uh, the rapid development, uh, developed technologies, digital technologies now has largely changed the relationship between the maybe the authors, creators, and the publishers. So um, uh, my question is, in what ways do you think this uh, social media will uh, have the great importance in helping the creators to connect their audiences? So it's a question about social media helping authors and their yeah, connection with audiences? Self-publishers yeah. or the individual creators. Uh, or does it mean uh, the social media now have um, replaced Partly, uh, I mean that's some of the role of the uh, publisher. Um, does anybody want to, Davina? Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think we quite see it like that. We we encourage authors to. So we have a, a dedicated website that has full of resources for authors to do marketing of their own um, publications. Because again, it's about influence. So you make the assumption that they have the influence within their community, uh, and and you're just trying to translate that online, really. Um, so we quite often encourage videos, YouTube um, sort of question and answer interviews with authors, and and uh, yeah, it's, it's I think it's used more for marketing in collaboration with <coughs> publishers. Um, just the only thing I'd say to that is I think it's a part it's a part of that relationship. Um, your you know there are things that you will you know need need your publisher to do. There are things that you can do yourself, but. Ultimately, if you, for example, you're using Twitter as a way to build your profile, you need to have a separate thing, whether that's your own blog where people can get in touch with you, um, you know, and make sure that has an email address on it because plenty of people want to send a note. It, I'm slightly surprised sometimes at how hard it is to contact someone through Twitter. You know, there's, there's a few stages to that process. Well, if I was someone who was looking for a publisher, and, and uh, sorry, if I was an agent and I saw someone and, that, and you know they were on Twitter and I thought that's interesting, it took me three or four clicks at something, I might not bother, you know. But if I can click to find an email address very easily, well, you know, make it as easy as possible. Okay, lady in the middle on the left there has got a hand up. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, just a quick question to everybody. A lot of us in this room are either one book, two book type of people. Budgets are limited. Time is absolutely limited because we're the publishers, designers, and everything. Quick tips of you know, or your top three things to focus on. For example. The idea of giving out hundreds of books—we only printed two hundred. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, you know, what are some of the things that we can do? You talked about proofs. Should we go electronic proofs as opposed to sending out physical books? And just very quick tips for. Okay, Joe. Three tips. <laughs> quick succession. Be honest with uh, be honest with your um, your followers. Um, try and be try and give them something that they're not going to get anywhere else which I guess is going to be information about what you actually publish. Um, 
I mean, I, I don't actually want to distill it to three points because I think Davina's six points were was it six yeah. were absolutely perfect. I think that I think if you're going to take anything from this, uh, you should write down those six points. Um, and uh, I think they were absolutely nailed. Uh, so I'm, I'm afraid I'm just going to say what Davina said. <laughs> okay, Tom, do you want to come in on that? Anything else you want to say? Uh, I'll just say one of, one of the things that we've done a lot of is, is trying stuff really quickly and seeing what works and doing more of what works and dropping very quickly what doesn't. So it is a forum where you can really, really experiment. I'm going to just add one quick thing, which is about the time. And the, uh, a lady earlier asked about time constraints. I kind of think that I, I feel that's a slightly uh, wrong way to look at it. I mean, do you measure the time that you do you measure the time versus cost of every single thing you do in the office, be it what you photocopy, what emails you read, what an email that you send to a customer, uh, what impact that has? I think that you kind of just need to look at it as, as like Tom says, you try lots of things, you try them quickly. You know, if you if you send an email to somebody and it doesn't work, it, they, you don't get a response. You send a different one. And I think in the same way as you as using Twitter or Facebook or any social media, try something, if it doesn't work, try something else and build it into your time. Okay, gentlemen in the front on the left. Hey, um, uh, I'm wondering what, uh, I, I generate assets for, for these kind of marketing campaigns, like videos and things like that. I'm wondering what kind of assets you get best return on in, during these, these kind of marketing campaigns. And if there was one key asset that you, you know, is a surefire hit to get hit. Okay, Tom, you look like you could answer um, that one. For us, it's probably our authors and the experiences that they're out there having, either through blog posts or through video. Okay, anybody else want to come in on that one? Joe? People seem to look at uh, mini sites based around particular. Um, so, for example, Penguin just republished the Essentials. Every, I bet every single person in this room has an old version of the Penguin Essential. Um, and we've just repackaged them, and on that web, on that mini site that we created, it's got videos for uh, designers um, from the editor who put the series together, and that has been watched. That that's been clicked through on my Twitter feed, the Penguin Twitter feed, and a couple of people marketing is more than I think anything else. But of course, videos are very difficult to uh, get the metadata right on and search for. Uh, so I think you have to build them into something, especially like a mini site. Okay, I'm going to try and squeeze another question in. Lady at the front here. Uh, the question is for Joe. Thank you, Joe. Um, I was curious to know how long did it take me to know and how did the book got to you, your, your company? Because at the moment, there's quite a long process from a new writer to get to a publishing house. So, and do you think and how do you see that the social media school network can help that process shorten? Um, I, well, I. I don't know in terms of the social media shortening that process. Um, that book took 10 years for him to write, 12 years to get published because uh, it sat in a drawer for years and wouldn't be sent out by agents. And then it was reviewed in the New York Times when it, he, won, he entered it blind into a writing contest and it won and uh, it got published by UMass. Reviewed in the New York Times, that review came to our editor's attention. In the end, that happened really quickly, but you know, it also sat in a drawer for 12 years. Um, I don't know if that would have helped, if being on social media would have helped David. I, you know, what's he gonna say to kind of, you know, people like this book, but they won't send it out. It's kind of, it's, 
That's a very difficult question to answer, and I, I genuinely don't know. I think that in this, I think that Twitter and Facebook, Twitter is especially, is adding its. Is, you can just add it to the list of ways in which people will find out about new writers. I don't think it's especially better than anything else, but you know, it's it's a it's to the ever growing list of the way publishers will find out about writers and talent. I think. Okay, I'm going to try another question. Somebody got one, um, or we come to the. Oh, there's a lady at the front here. Yeah. Um, going back to the time kind of versus what you get out of it. Do you, do you think that social media can actually really help smaller and, and independent publishers to kind of get ahead in terms of publicity and the fact that it doesn't actually cost anything um, to do to set up and it's fairly easy to get to get on? Do you think they can kind of really make a go of it to do that? Cool. Um, I, I can only really speak about the travel space, um, but I, I think it's, it's hugely notable that the um, most influential voices in a lot of cases, in all cases, are, are not the biggest names. They're the people who are doing the best stuff and engaging people in the best way and getting out there and going to travel, travel, travel tweet meetups or whatever they're called <laughs> um, and, and things like that. So yeah, I think they can. Yeah, but you got, but you got to be pretty sharp, I think. Davina, do you want to? I just agree. disagree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. That's Can we disagree about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's wrong. No, yeah. you, sh you shouldn't engage at all. Spend <laughs> um, money on it. <laughs> I think, from a, a literary publishing point of view, uh, just to uh, choose different my category, I think it's actually crucial for independents and small publishers. Um, I mean, I'm not that all of you or even any of you will have will know about Perini Press. It's an absolutely tiny uh, foreign language publisher. Um, I'd never heard of it before I went on uh, uh, before I was on Twitter, but they've got a really good presence. They've got a great voice. They publish some great books, and bloggers uh, absolutely love them. And they now, to my mind, have a good brand, whereas before they didn't even exist in my mind. I think the social media is a way for publishers to actually, especially small publishers, to actually build their brand. Conversely, I think that you can also damage your brand if you don't do it very well. Um, especially, you know, if, if I think Penguin is good on Twitter, if it wasn't any good, that would be bad for Penguin's reputation. Um, but I think it's absolutely crucial for small publishers to, to do stuff through social media and to work out how to do it well. Okay, yeah, I think we're coming to the end of our time now. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Do tell people about the podcast. And please, 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 before you go, I'm enormously grateful to our speakers. Please give them a huge round of applause. Thank you very much.